Welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Raymond Nakamura. And me, Carolyn Nakagawa. Coming to you from the vault at the Nikkei National Museum. That's right, we're back here again. And we're close to some military uniforms, or at least... Are we? We were. There was some clothing on one side. I remember there used to be, I think there's one in here. There's also kimono and other clothing. But anyway, Beautiful we're thinking of, of World War One yes. and the situation where Japanese Canadians who were fighting for their rights decided to join the Canadian army as a show of that. Right. So over 200 Japanese immigrants who had become naturalized Canadians fought for Canada in World War One, And that is the subject of our current fall exhibit, which is called Mononofu, or Warrior Spirit, and honors the legacy of these veterans 100 years after they enlisted in 1916. And during the development of this exhibit, one of the really interesting connections that we found is this connection to the samurai, Japanese samurai, and sort of the the mythological idea of samurai that we're all aware of, I think, on some level. There seems to have been a certain degree of real connection to real-life samurai among some of the soldiers that fought for Canada Mm -hmm. from Japan, the Satsuma clan which was based in modern-day Kagoshima Prefecture in Mm -hmm. Kyushu in Japan, which was one of the biggest, most notorious, powerful samurai clans. And they speak a different dialect even now, so it's hard to understand. Yes, quite a few of the soldiers who fought for Canada in World War I list their birthplace as Kagoshima Prefecture. And we've identified at least one or two that identified themselves specifically as samurai lineage from the Satsuma clan. And we do have a piece of samurai armor that we believe was acquired by a family in Vancouver during the dispossession of Japanese Canadians in the 40s that's been donated back to the museum. So we decided to call the exhibit Warrior Spirit to sort of honor not only those men, but all of the men who decided to sign up and sacrifice themselves and serve their country, their adopted country of Canada. But we were thinking about, well, how much of that actually does tie into their decision and their bravery in the battlefield, how much of that ties back to the traditional values of samurai, the samurai class, and of Bushido. So Mm -hmm. Raymond and I decided to look into that a little more. Right. I came across an interesting book, which is one of the first treatises or, well, books written about Bushido by Inazo Nitobe. And there is a Nitobe Garden at UBC, which is named after him. And he he actually died in Victoria. So he was actually a Japanese-Canadian himself, and he wrote the book in English, I understand. Yeah, well, he was from Japan, Mm -hmm. uh, and he just happened to be traveling when, when that happened. So was he American? Uh, I'm not sure what his, he married an American right. and he spent a lot of time in the United States. Mm-hmm. He studied agriculture, economics, and mm-hmm. English literature. Wow. Uh, so quite a diverse person. And he saw himself as a bridge across the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting about his approach to Bushido is he was a Quaker, so a pacifist. And so he- it wasn't. He was a Quaker? Yeah. So he, he became Christian mm-hmm. uh, in university mm-hmm. and then subsequently uh, became a Quaker. Wow. And he's on the one of the monies, or he used to be anyway, Japanese money. He's on one Oh, of them. really? I can't remember which bill. But in any case, he, he's an important guy. And he wrote about Bushido. Partly, he said, in response to a friend of his and also in response to the questions that his American-born wife had about Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. And as he thought about it, he himself came from a samurai family, although he later went into other fields. He wrote this as a way of recognizing how 
samurai values that Bushido permeates all of Japanese society. That was his argument. Oh, I see. So, Bushi, for those who don't know, is just means warrior, and Do means way. So,、mm-hmm. it's basically the way of the warrior. Right. But that was really defined by Nitobe. It didn't exist, at least in that, that word didn't exist really before him, is what I understand. I guess the ones who did it were just thinking of it. I mean,、yeah. they were living they didn't, it. They didn't name then, it, they just lived it. Right. And he was the one who decided that this is something that really is tied to a warrior code of ethics. So we should call it Bushido, and this is how it's related and what it means. And he makes a distinct comparison with, or an ongoing comparison with chivalry. Mm-hmm. And so the values associated with knighthood throughout, he makes these comparisons and contrasts between Western ideals and the ones that have come out of this. And he argues that the samurai in a class system were considered the top, and everyone,、mm-hmm. even if they couldn't become one, were aspiring to those values.、Mm-hmm. And so some, some of those values included rectitude, which <laughs> meant the idea of. Behaving and acting without waffling, so being committed、mm. and, and being able to act in the right, right. way. So acting decisively. Yes.、Mm. Some people might say recklessly, but the, the way it's described as sort of going with your gut seems to be very important、mm. and sort of has that connection to the Zen Buddhism aspect of things where it's not an intellectual、mm-hmm. undertaking, it's being true to your inner. Self.、Mm-hmm. And tied with that is、uh, courage, obviously having to go through with things that might be otherwise disagreeable. And then there was benevolence, which is interesting and also comes from the Confucian influence and the hierarchy that's in there. How important it is for those who are in charge to have this sense of benevolence so that just because you have power, well, it's like Spider Man, absolutely. <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. Very and, true. and the idea of benevolence being important. And he extended that to the way. Japanese society ran under a paternal government rather than a dictatorial one, in the sense that the、oh. people underneath them were also considering themselves part of this kind of family where the government、right. was telling them what so to do. So the sense of relationship between the government and the people was paternalistic rather、right. than purely about power and control、yes. in a sort of dictator system. Oh, yeah.、Okay. yeah. So that's kind of interesting and ties in with feudalism, with the hierarchy where、right. people kind of saw themselves in their places. Right. And of course, That can be open to difficulties, but anyway, that seemed、mm-hmm. to be what led to contentment within people as、right. seeing themselves. Yeah, and that's the, that social system is very closely tied to how this code of ethics came about.、Mm-hmm. Right. And another element, which is still, I guess, a hallmark often of Japanese culture of politeness.、Mm-hmm. And he makes a distinction of it not being about being afraid to offend somebody, but truly respecting. Other people, and he、mm. ties it akin to being conscious of other people and being thoughtful of、mm-hmm. them and being close to、uh, an expression of love. So, being considerate, basically. Yes, yes, that idea of consideration、yeah. being very important、mm-hmm. and having the calmness. To be able to behave in the right way with the right feeling.、Mm-hmm. And then, perhaps in contrast to that, but the idea of being truthful.、Uh, <laughs> some people might see politeness well, as being. Tactful. Yeah, well, there's、But、tactful.、Truthful. Yeah, yeah. So being truthful <laughs> to yourself, yeah. And、uh, this idea of honor being、mm-hmm. obviously important and often comes up, as you imagine, almost stereotypically, the idea of samurai talking about honor and,、mm-hmm. and saving face. That's the one that's、thing. really most closely associated, I think, with the popular understanding of samurai. Right. And I think it's interesting in the case of the people who are 
joining the war for the sake of getting the rights as so it we're being a form of World War One. Right. Yeah. The situation of people of Japanese descent not having the right to vote. They weren't being respected mm -hmm. as citizens. So right. in a sense that they were seeking their honor. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a very samurai sort of approach Certainly. to be willing to sacrifice themselves mm -hmm. for the sake of, of having this, the idea of honor. Mm -hmm. And tied in with that was loyalty. Right. So loyalty is interesting because it makes you then part of a larger system mm -hmm. that is not just about yourself. Yeah. And it's not just about this, but the idea of loyalty to something bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. So that could be, well, for samurai, for actual real samurai, it would have been their lord, their daimyo. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it also extends to being loyal to the emperor. Mm -hmm. So you can translate that and see that Japanese Canadians in World War One were looking at loyalty to their country mm -hmm. and serving their country. And actually, because Japan and Canada were allies during World War One, they were able to show their loyalty both to their country of birth and their adopted country by serving. Right. Yes. Yeah. So being yeah. so, and that's an interesting contrast, obviously, with World War Two. Yes. Of them being on the same right. side, and so that their loyalties were more aligned in that mm -hmm. sense. Yes. But it's interesting when I'm listening to you list off all those traits of Bushido, the characteristics of someone who's following Bushido, is that very few of them seem to be related to you know fighting in battle with a sword. Right. It's, just, it's about being an ethical person. It seems to me that samurai, were they were so much more than just warriors. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a great level of detailed knowledge about Japanese history, but I seem to remember that there's a period of time during the time when the samurai class was, was existing and very powerful, where there actually weren't a lot of wars. It was very peaceful for uh -huh. several generations. And that's when, because they had this privilege, but they didn't actually have too much work to do. Right. Because they are professional soldiers, basically, right. professional warriors in a time when there was no war, mm -hmm. when they were able to cultivate all these cultural refined sensibilities mm -hmm. and they developed things like the tea ceremony. Right. And I think they also, you know, wrote poems and things like that. And mm -hmm. they tended to be, because they were above the peasant class, mm -hmm. they would be more educated usually mm -hmm. and really valued that sense of culture and refined sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And sort of the finer things in life. Although at the same time, I guess there might have been some tension with this of not being overly intellectual about things. Yes. And having that immediacy yeah. of experience at the same right. time, being Which, conscious. Yeah, but I think that is also tied to a lot of things we think about in terms of traditional Japanese arts, like the tea ceremonies about savoring the moment. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm an expert on the tea ceremony, but from what I've experienced of that and things like haiku being about the savoring a moment in time that returns to eternity almost. Mm -hmm. It's not about having very complex ideas. It's about the very potent, very simple, but very powerful experience. So I think that is definitely in line with the rectitude yeah. Of Bushido. Yeah, and that's right. It does seem to be consistent. Even when I think about it, the idea of the enjoyment of cherry blossom viewing. Yes. Of yes. natural phenomena. Yes. Of, of the and the very moon. ephemeral beauty. Yes. Even, it's kind of weird to think of maybe, but sumo wrestling, the fact that it's over <laughs> so quickly, you know, it's not a protracted <laughs> thing. Sure. That, that they're interested in that. Well, you know, they actually did practice sumo. The World War One soldiers, the Japanese units in France would do sumo as a way of sort of breaking up their regular training routine. Sometimes they would do their regular military drills and sometimes they would do sumo just to change hmm. things up. So I, 
Yeah, so definitely it's part of that Japanese traditions that were very strong in the Japanese-Canadian soldiers. You know what also brings to mind is the time that this Nitobe was writing was right around 1900. Uh -huh. And even though when the Meiji took over, then technically the classes were dismantled. Yeah, so that was around 1868 or something like that. Right, right close to when Canada was becoming a country, yes. coincidentally. Um, there was this movement to have the martial arts as a form of physical education. Mm -hmm. So it was around that time that judo became a thing and, oh, really? and kendo became a thing. And so they were being developed and brought over with Japanese who settled in Canada as right. well. And so it's interesting that that was being incorporated as mm -hmm. a way of continuing on those values, or right. at least the, the physical aspect right. of it. Because samurai was a very specific thing. It was a samurai class. You could be a commoner, a farmer, a peasant, a nobleman, or a samurai, right? And then there might have been other classes, I'm not sure. But that changed, like you said, with the Meiji Restoration. And I think it just changed form. I was looking into the last big push of the samurai who were really resistant to this change because it was basically the establishment of a new order where their way of life had no place in it. So, mm -hmm. of course, they were going to fight against that change. The last big push was the Satsuma Rebellion in 1877. So one 1877, I think that's an important date to note because it's the same year that Manzo Nagano came to Canada. So you see how the end of the samurai period really coincides with Japanese emigration to Canada. Mm -hmm. And actually, there are stories sort of here and there anecdotally of samurai class families who would emigrate to Canada because they no longer had a place in Japan. So similar to the ways that many, mostly young Japanese men and then later families were emigrating to Canada because they were poor, because they had hardship. Well, samurai were also poor mm -hmm. and also didn't know what they could do in this new world. So they were seeking out new opportunities. It wasn't like if you were, say, a wealthy nobleman still, you would probably stay in Japan. Right. Yeah, sure. So the more educated emigrants from Japan to Canada were usually samurai class because that was a tradition of samurais that they tended to be well educated and have, you know, cultivation in the arts. Mm-hmm. And they would bring that to Canada with them. But at the same time, going back to the Satsuma Rebellion, the interesting thing about that is the Satsuma Rebellion was the samurai army mm -hmm. versus the imperial army, mm -hmm. which was conscripted from every social class. So the idea was, I think, that the samurai felt like being a warrior was a privilege and that they were superior to this ragtag group of government-trained and recruited, mostly commoners, conscripted from all social classes. But because the Imperial Army had modern technology, and also because they were able to continue conscripting replacements for any casualties, they replenished their army, whereas the Samurai Army basically just depleted. Mm. They were able to win. So what happened was the Samurai lost to modern technology and also to a more democratic view of what being a warrior and fighting meant. That's, I think, interesting about how the story gets framed. Mm -hmm. Like in the, the version with The Last Samurai that has Tom Cruise in it. I haven't not that seen I'm, that movie. Not, have you seen it? <laughs> yeah, I saw. Not that I'm Why using is, this as a historical... How is Tom Cruise a samurai? I don't well, understand. Well, he somehow becomes a consultant at this time when they were reaching out all around the world to get Western influences. And so, see, the idea of... It could, on one hand, be about democratization, but it mm -hmm. turns out that Tom Cruise feels more affinity to the samurai and their traditional ways of doing things. Well, of course. Because in contrast, the way that's set up is that it's about not democratization, but mm -hmm. 
mechanization of society mm -hmm. and bureaucracy right. and commercialism. Yeah. And so that's, I think, very interesting that how they it can contradict. Be... Well, yeah. also, I'll say I'm thinking about it being like more democratic because it's all social classes. But at the same time, it's an imperial army and it's conscription. Mm -hmm. So it's also it's democratic in terms of who has access to the samurai duty, I guess. But it's being enforced by an imperial power. So right. yeah. it's very contradictory in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's right. But I think it did give access to the romantic idea of the samurai to people beyond those who were born to that class. Yeah, so there's the idea that if the samurai were considered the top class, mm -hmm. that everyone else, even though they couldn't be born into it, mm -hmm. could aspire to those values. Yeah. That they now were serving the role of the samurai. Right. And that you didn't have to be born into it. Because it seems that later on in the Russo-Japanese War, that many of the Japanese soldiers, I think they were actually reading Nitobe's Bushido book, but they were heavily influenced by this idea about Bushido mm. while they were fighting for Japan. So that was around 1904. Russia. Yeah. So it's interesting because he wrote his book first in English. Yes. And it didn't come out in yeah. Japanese until a few editions later. Yes. So, but and then it that became very yeah. powerful for Japanese people, even though it had been written to explain this culture to the West, it mm -hmm. became a way that the Japanese people understood themselves. Mm -hmm. In contrast to that, I was reading this book, Hagakure, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be meaning for some reason, hidden leaves or leaves that are hidden. Uh -huh. And that was written in the 1700s based on conversations between a person who had been a samurai, a retainer, and he had become a monk because his boss, his daimyo, had died. Right, so he became a ronin, an unemployed samurai. And so rather than, well, rather than following in that way, he became, he was allowed to become a monk. Right. And so he had these conversations with a younger man. And so the book is just a whole bunch, or at least the version that I saw is a series of anecdotes. And this idea of there being a concrete philosophy doesn't seem to be there. And if anything, this is a quote from it. Although it stands to reason that a samurai should be mindful of the way of the samurai, it would seem seem that we are all negligent. Consequently, if someone were to ask, what is the true meaning of the way of the samurai? The person who would be able to answer promptly is rare. This mm -hmm. is because it has not been established in one's mind beforehand. From this, one's unmindfulness of the way can be known. Negligence is an extreme thing. Hmm. So he was almost calling for the work that Itobe did later. Possibly, or he was just sort of recognizing, yeah, this is the way it is. That it's he, kind of ineffable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going back to Canada and the Canadian connections, like I said, there seems to be at least some number of people who emigrated from Japan from the samurai class because they needed to find a new way to make their way in the world. We don't have exact figures on that, but there certainly are stories anecdotally in the community of families with samurai ancestors. And one of those people who was very prominent was Yasushi Yamazaki. Mm -hmm. And he was the president of the Canadian-Japanese Association, starting a little bit before World War I. And he was descended from a samurai family from Toyamaken. And he was the one who championed the idea that they should recruit a battalion of Japanese-Canadian soldiers, of soldiers from Japan who had become Canadian citizens, and that fighting for Canada would mean that the government would have to give them the right to vote. And he ran a newspaper. The Taidiku Nippo, yes, Japanese language newspaper. So I think that's really something about him that, you know, his way of thinking was that you prove your worthiness, you prove mm -hmm. your honor in battle. And he believed that the samurai spirit was strong in the community and would bring honor to Japanese Canadians by serving Canada. Mm. 
So that must have been quite an effort then to recruit these people. Yes. Or they were getting general support. Yes. So Yamazaki himself was too old to serve in the Canadian Army. He was, I think, in his late 40s at that time. Um, and I think the cutoff was 45. He was middle-aged. But he encouraged younger men in the community, and they ended up recruiting over 220 soldiers and trained them at their own expense. Here's a quote from Hagakure about being too old. Oh, really? <laughs> it says, It is said that Tokunaga Kichizaemon repeatedly complained, I've grown so old now that even if I were to be in battle i wouldn't be able to do anything still i would like to die by galloping into the midst of the enemy and being struck down and killed it would be a shame to do nothing more than to die in one's bed oh dear i don't know whether yamazaki thought that way well yamazaki didn't have the greatest time of it in the end he felt responsible for how many of the japanese canadian soldiers didn't come home mm. there were over 50 fatal casualties yeah and you consider about 200 went that's yeah. pretty serious i think there are only six that didn't have some kind of serious wound wow. so i think when he saw that he actually resigned from the canadian japanese association he felt responsible for the deaths of so many young men so it is a rather tragic story from his perspective but you can see that it was motivated by quite noble intentions and also by a desire to gain this privilege or this right to vote and to be recognized as full citizens for the whole community. So again, I'm going to go back to this contradiction of the samurai being such a very class-based hierarchical system devised from feudalism, but also how it gets adapted to become more democratic in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I think... But it was only the veterans yes. who got the right, right? But so their were... intention yes, was their to intention. win the right for everybody. Yes. For yes. all Japanese Canadians. Right. But yeah, they're following the traditional samurai purpose of serving their overlord, where the overlord is the state, really, their nation of Canada. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they were doing this while realizing that they weren't recognized by Canada the way they should be. They weren't getting the proper respect and that they were going to earn it. Yes. But not just for themselves as the noble warriors, right. but for all Japanese Canadians. Yes. And that was shown also, I mean, of those 200-odd soldiers, some of them certainly were samurai or samurai class. Others were not. Mm -hmm. It was really anyone who was willing to make that sacrifice. So you see that it becomes accessible mm -hmm. to anyone who wants to live up to that code of honor. Mm -hmm. I suppose that ties in with the idea of benevolence, of willing to sacrifice yourself for others, mm -hmm. and of loyalty to mm -hmm. a, the sense of community. Yeah. I wanted to mention one particular veteran who was actually, did actually claim himself as a descendant of the Satsuma clan. His name was Sainosuke Kubota, and he was the secretary of the Japanese Legion of the Canadian Army after returning from World War One. He wrote a poem that he read in honor of his fallen comrades on the occasion of the veterans receiving the vote in 1931. So it goes, Although you are gone, you are not dead. Surely the setting sun will rise again for you. Your heroic spirit will live in our hearts. We take the torch from your hand to fight and carry on. So that was originally written in Japanese, but I've just read the translation. Mm -hmm. And I think... It shows that for him especially, he talks about feeling like it's his duty to experience war and be a part of war. And the deep sense of honor he feels for the comrades he had who made the ultimate sacrifice. And he actually, I think because of his position as Secretary of the Legion, he was the one who was entrusted with the honor roll. This is this composite of pictures of all of the Japanese-Canadian soldiers who died in oh, World War I. Have you seen it? Is that the one that got refurbished recently? I think so. It's at the language school now. Oh. 
So he took it with him during the force wow. dispersal when everyone That's a big thing to be carrying around. Yeah. yeah, right? He took it with him. It was entrusted to him. And he finally returned it to Vancouver in April 1977. The um, centennial from when Manzo Nagano Yes, first the Japanese-Canadian centennial. He had kept it as well as other banners from the Japanese-Canadian veterans organizations in safekeeping for all those years. And when he returned it to Vancouver, he said, this is my last duty as secretary. He was 87 years old. And he wow. was happy to have completed this duty to his fallen comrades as he saw it. And he actually died the following year. So I think of him as someone who really had that sense of duty related to the samurai spirit. Mm -hmm. And I mean, also, we can't actually identify every single World War I vet right. who was descended from samurai family. The only way to do that for sure would be to go back to Japan and find all of their birth records where their class, I believe, would have been identified on their birth records. But even that, like, I don't even know how many of those records would still exist. So that's the only way we could do that for sure. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily talk about it. Like, it seems like even Sainosuke Kubota, he's written first-person accounts that don't mention that at all. Mm. So I think it's very possible that there are several more samurai Canadian veterans right. who will never know that that's part of what motivated them to fight. Mm -hmm. But I do notice that it seems to be part of Japanese-Canadian identity, especially in that time period, I think, around and leading up to World War II almost, that the Japanese-Canadian community claims that as part of their culture. And I think it is part of the adoption of the Bushido values and code of ethics as part of Japanese culture and part of pride in Japanese culture. So it's an interesting subject to discuss. This is a sense of how to make understanding or the difficulties of trying to understand the past, according to uh, Tsunetomo Yamamoto. He says, in carefully scrutinizing the affairs of the past, we find that there are many different opinions about them and that there are some things that are quite unclear. Mm. It is better to regard such things as unknowable. Lord Sanenori once said, as for the things we don't understand, there are ways of understanding them. Furthermore, there are some things we understand just naturally. And again, some things we can't understand no matter how hard we try. This is interesting. This is very profound. It is natural that one cannot understand deep and hidden things. Those things that are easily understood are rather shallow. So that's the samurai perspective. Well, at least our, that's his individual. Our, our lack of ability to, to know for certain about all the samurai who fought in World the War I. The influence of the Bushido on yes. their attitude. We know it was there. We'll never know quite to what extent. Mm -hmm. But you'd be able to at least see the names of them in the articles in Stories of My People by Roy Ito. Mm -hmm. Or the memorial down by Stanley Park, which mm -hmm. has their names listed. And then in the exhibit. Until next time. Mm -hmm.